Well, we have been studying together the past few weeks what is called the first missionary journey of Paul. Later, we will see Paul's second and third missionary journeys as he goes throughout the known world, planting churches, preaching the gospel, and changing lives. And this is, I think, a good opportunity to pause and to think about how Paul conducted his ministry, not just as a missionary, but as a pastor, as an apologist, as a bearer of the word of God. Because you see, oftentimes I think we face the same types of questions that Paul and Barnabas faced. A question that comes up very often in our circles is, how do we engage the culture? There are dozens and dozens of books written on this subject. And it gets to the point where we discuss how we can engage various subcultures of our culture. How do we engage an urban culture? How do we engage a rural culture, an educated one, a blue-collar one? The answer is found in this chapter 14. Because you see, Paul here continues to be many things to many men. Always a preacher of the gospel. But he brings it in varying ways, depending upon the experience and the hearing ears of others. And so if we would engage our culture, we must follow after the Apostle Paul. We must see how he does this. And this morning, we will see him do it in three cities as we look at a tale of not two, but three cities. We'll see Paul experiencing division in Iconium. And then we will see the confusion that is found in Lystra. And then we will see Paul bringing encouragement in Antioch. Division in Iconium, confusion in Lystra and encouragement in Antioch. Let's begin then at the beginning of chapter 14 and see how Paul and Barnabas operated in the city of Iconium. Their journey has been continuing. They have set out from Antioch, Antioch in Syria. You remember there are many of them. Antioch in Syria. They have set out from there and they went first to Cyprus. And at Cyprus, they experienced great success. They defeated a sorcerer who wanted to stop the gospel. And a governor, a Roman governor, Sergius Paulus, hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, is converted, and places his trust and faith in Jesus. As we said before, this is an outstanding result. Something perhaps no one would have dreamt of that the governor of a Roman province would turn to the living God. And then they moved on to yet another Antioch, this now Antioch in Pisidia, in what is central Turkey, in a mountain region. And they went and they brought the gospel there in what is really a dangerous area with mountain bandits. It was an area in which even the Romans were afraid. They were trying to keep control by planting uh, veterans of the army, to keep an eye on the area. And they passed over these mountains from Antioch, and now they are found in Iconium. And in Iconium, they do what they have done in many, many other places. It's a familiar pattern. They come into town, they ask where the local synagogue is, and they go 
and they preach. This is their pattern. They first go to those who have an immediate point of contact with them. We saw Paul's sermon last week in chapter 13 where he went into the synagogue and he was able to immediately quote from the Psalms, Isaiah. And he didn't even have to say, you know, it's like in Psalm 2. He would just begin quoting and everyone would turn in their Bibles to Psalm 2. It was a place where the Bible of the time, the Old Testament, was well known. And so they go into the synagogue and they speak and they speak powerfully. We notice this because it says that a great number were converted. So what is it that they do in these synagogues? What are they attempting to teach and to convince of? I think we see that here in the beginning of chapter 14. They remained a long time, Luke tells us in verse 3, and they spoke boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. The very first thing that they did was they spoke the word of the Lord. Now, this may seem very obvious to us. Yourself, well, of course they did. They're preachers, they're pastors, they're missionaries. They're going to have to speak the word of the Lord. But this is not something that we should take for granted. For at this very hour, in many pulpits, men are standing up to preach on the newspaper and on magazines and on books and on social issues and on the fancies of their own heart. But you see, when we go and we take the gospel, we must bring the word of the Lord. That is the gospel. The gospel is not our good intentions. The gospel is not our hopes and dreams. The gospel is not what makes us feel satisfied and warm on a cold day. The gospel is the word of the living God. You see, it is God's word that he entrusts to us And we are to bring it to others. And it is a word that is marked by grace. You see, they bring not only the word of the Lord, they bring the word of the Lord that is a word of grace. And this would be a breath of fresh air in the synagogue. You see, they remind the people that the God of the Old Testament, the God of Isaiah, the God of Genesis, the God of Exodus is a gracious God. He is a God who seeks to lavish grace upon them. To meet them where they are in the midst of all of their faults and sins. And to show them that He has provided for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this kind of setting is not dissimilar to 21st century American Christianity. In which we often are so secure in our knowledge of Bible stories and of our culture we fail to see the grace that comes from God. We think that it is up to us to meet God where He is instead of God coming down to us. (laughs) Even at this time of year, far too often, thoughts of Christmas are filled with Santa Claus rhymes than with the grace of God. We think of God as one who is always watching and knows when we've been naughty and knows when we've been nice. And so we'd what? We'd better watch out. But the God of the Bible knows that we are always 
naughty. All of our thoughts, all of our intentions, all of our words are hopelessly marred by sin. But the grace and the miracle of the God of the Bible is that He pushes past all of that. He doesn't ask us to clean up our act first. He brings us the Lord Jesus Christ. God comes down to man. This is the word of grace. At every place that Paul went, that's what he brought. Because it had captured his own heart. He before had been a man consumed with what he could do. And the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road road to Damascus and turned his entire life around. This was the content of what Paul and Barnabas brought in Iconium. But I want you to also see the manner in which they preached. Luke tells us that they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks were were believing. But then as a result, hostility came up. And how did they face hostility? Did they hide? Did they change their message to be more accommodating? No. The text is actually very bold. Look at verse 3. Because a plot was stirred up against them, as a result, they remained for a long time. The plot was against them, so they remained for a long time. And not only did they remain, they preached boldly. You see, in the face of resistance, they knew it was all the more important to stick it out and to be bold with the gospel. And the only way they could do this was to rely on the Lord. Do you wonder how Paul and Barnabas could stand in the face of resistance? Perhaps you've had resistance in your life when you've tried in fumbling attempts to tell people of Jesus Christ. And your tongue gets tied that someone throws big words and statistics at you. And maybe they even break out a netbook or a laptop and they start typing things into Google and showing you how nothing that you say could be right. What do you do? Do you feel like giving up? Well, you see, the only way you can persevere on is the way that you have begun in the Lord. And that is by relying completely upon Him. You see, they spoke boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders. God was in charge of this mission. Do you notice how odd this seems here in verse 3? Who bears witness to the Lord? Is it Paul? Is it Barnabas? Is it the disciples? Does Peter come in? No, it's actually the Lord bearing witness to Himself. The Lord persevering in their life and their preaching. God completely in control. And this is what happens when the gospel is brought to a place like Iconium. The results of the gospel are what we have seen over and over again. You see, Paul and Barnabas bring the gospel everywhere they go and they meet two results. They meet faith and they meet resistance. And this leads to an inevitable division. Now look, they preach, and not just a few, but many, many both Jews and Greeks come to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They have faith in Jesus as their Savior, as the only one who can wipe their sins away. This is a miracle in the working. 
And God puts his stamp upon this with various signs and wonders. This is the success of the gospel. But as much as we rejoice in this, we cannot forget that the gospel even here in Iconium, even with the great apostle Paul, even with many being converted, is not an unmixed success. You see, the heart of man is able to resist the word of God, accept the Holy Spirit, bring a heart of flesh, replace a heart of stone. We are resistant to the word. And this happens here in Iconium. Paul is resisted. The word is resisted. And it starts with some unbelieving Jews. There are some in the synagogue that are sitting perhaps in the back seats hearing Paul speak and they're saying, this guy's all wet. This guy thinks he knows his Bible. He doesn't know anything from the Bible. I bet you I could quote all kinds of sections from Jeremiah. He wouldn't even know where they are. Oh, he doesn't really understand the story of Jacob. Come on. And the Messiah, how could he possibly think he knows who the Messiah is? And they grumble and they groan. But you see, this kind of resistance is not satisfied to sit still. Because it not only starts with the unbelieving Jews, but it begins to spread. And they begin to stir up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds. And the word there is very vivid. You know that Lord's Prayer where it says, deliver us from the evil one? Poisoning their minds here is the verb in Greek that the noun evil one is. They are eviling their minds. They are deviling their minds. They seek to turn them to the thoughts of Satan, not the thoughts of God. And they want so much to defeat the gospel, they do something that would be unthinkable. They team up with the Gentiles. Do you remember what Jews thought of Gentiles? They called them dogs. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't go into their houses. They wouldn't speak with them. They wouldn't let them in the temple. Gentiles were the lowest of the lowest of the low class to the Jews. But yet, these Jews hate the gospel and hate Jesus so much. These same folks that they wouldn't eat with, they now bring them up and put their arms around them and say, how can we defeat this Paul and this preaching? This kind of resistance is satanic at its core. And it leads then to a division. You see, Luke is very bold about it. He says that some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. And a division was formed, opposing armies, if you will, opposing teams. And this is a natural of the gospel. It is a division. But I want you to notice something very clearly. Who causes the division? It's not the believers. It's not the apostles. They're not encouraging division. It is those who are opposed. You see, I think oftentimes we read passages like this or where our Lord tells us that he came to divide families and we think we need to do our best to split people up and to turn people off 
And that is somehow a test of our faithfulness to the Scriptures. But that's not what Paul does. He doesn't mince words at all. He doesn't change his message, but he does everything that he can in his power to retain an audience. This is how we should approach others with the gospel. We should not be happy when people walk away rejecting the gospel. I think oftentimes we get a sense of satisfaction saying, you know, the gospel's hard and they can't take it. Instead, we should be pleading with them, showing them the truth of God's word. Well, this is based in Iconium. And a plot comes up against him. And they withdraw from Iconium to go on with their journey to avoid harm. And they come to the town of Lystra. And an interesting thing happens here. Paul begins doing what he always does. He starts preaching the gospel. And a man is sitting. And it seems like we've heard this story before, haven't we? A man who was sitting who was lame from birth. If you don't remember, this is almost a repeat of Acts chapter 3. When in the temple, Peter saw a man who was lame from birth and he healed him. Now I want you to notice the order here. Paul is going in and first he is speaking about the gospel. We know this because in verse 9, the man is listening to Paul as he speaks. And then Paul perceives that somehow he has a connection with this man. He perceives that he has the faith to be saved. And he looks intently at him, exactly as Peter did. And he says to him, get up and walk. Rise, stand, even though you never have. And this man was listening intently. How do we know? Because he didn't say, Paul, you're crazy. I haven't ever walked. Come on, Paul. No, what does he do? He immediately pops up. Again, Luke uses a verb here that is is very active. He doesn't struggle to his feet. He doesn't groan and complain. He hears that he's healed and he pops up. Now, I don't know if he went jumping and dancing and springing like the man did in Acts 3. But he certainly had the faith to believe that he could stand. And so we see this here. He has obedience to the command of Paul. An obedience that is the result of his faith. That shows that he is a believer. This is how we should treat obedience. You see, it was not the man's obedience that healed him. It was not the man's obedience that saved him, but that obedience was necessarily there to show he had been changed. If he didn't obey, he would have shown that he had no faith. He didn't believe Paul, but he did. And so he stands up, and those who are around here in Lystra, they see the power of the supernatural at work. Now, you need to know something a little bit about the town of Lystra. Lystra is not exactly New York City. It's not Miami or Chicago. It's more like Moosehead or Kosciuszko, Mississippi or East Texas. It's a bit what we might call rustic, to use a phrase. 
the folks here had cowboy boots on. The folks here spoke with an accent. The folks here, we know, didn't even typically speak the language that was spoken in other places. You see, every place else Paul would go, he knew Latin. Almost everyone did. He knew Greek. Almost everyone did. Here, they know Lyconian. What's Lyconian? Well, it's the language they speak only here. It's a bit of a rustic place. And so it's it's very different than Iconium, a place that was a capital of a region, a place where there was a synagogue, a place where there was reading and teaching. Here, this is a bit out, we might say, in the sticks. But they see the power that is before them, and they can't deny it. And so they react in one of the typical ways in which people react. They react with superstition. You see, they see this miracle happening, and immediately they cry out, the gods are among us. Look, it's Zeus. Look, it's Hermes. And the reason why Paul and Barnabas don't object is they don't know what they're saying because they're speaking in this little town language. Now, why would they be so concerned about this? Why would they go and pull out the, the fatted calf and have a parade and they're ready to have a sacrifice? Well, you see, there's a story about an area near this town. It's recorded in a Roman poet by the name of Ovid. It's a story of how Zeus and Hermes came down to a valley. And they tried to get themselves entertained to come into the home of the people in the, in the valley. And everywhere they met, they went, they were met with a closed door. Except for one home with two elderly people. Baucus and Philemon. Yes, Philemon, not the same Philemon as the Bible, but the same name. And Baucus and Philemon invited Zeus and Hermes in. And they laid out the meager spread that they had before them. And when they discovered that they were gods, they were blessed, their home was turned into a temple, and everyone else was destroyed. So you can imagine here the folks of this town saying to themselves, Whoa, we better have a party here. Because the last time this happened, everybody got destroyed. I don't want to get destroyed. Do you want to get destroyed? Of course I don't want to get destroyed. Well, what do we do? Well, let's let's get a calf. Let's have a party. Let's have a parade. Let's honor them the best that we can. And so they break out this kind of joy. And so Paul and Barnabas are standing, and you can imagine, it's like when you see in the movies when missionaries or pilgrims or people go off into deepest Africa or South America and and the natives are talking and they don't know what they're saying and they smile and nod their heads, right? You may have even done that places. People are talking and talking and they're talking, you're listening. When they're smiling, you're smiling. When they're nodding their head, you're nodding your head, right? What's going on, Barnabas? I don't know, Paul. Let's just see what happens. And then the priest comes out with the sacrifice. And the parade begins. And the parade begins to go to the gate, the gate of the temple, not the gate of the city. And then Paul realizes what's going on here. And he says something that we might not expect. He says, wait a minute. What are you doing? We're men just like you. We're not better than you. What are you trying to do? 
Now, I say we might not expect this because far too often, I think, we are unable to resist the temptation of praise and honor that is put upon us, even if it's not true, even if it's a bit odd or quaint. You see, there'd be some who would say in mission work, what Paul should do here is he should meet the people where they are. He should pretend for a while to be a god. Maybe that'll give him a better audience in a week or two. It might, but it would sadly and hopelessly compromise the message, wouldn't it? The people might love him, but a month later when he tries to describe to them that there's no such thing as Zeus or Hermes, what are they going to say? Well, then why did you let us put a party on for a week and a half? You see? Paul's more concerned about the message and the mission than himself. And so he then begins to preach to them. And I want you to see how Paul is a master of his audience. You remember how Paul preaches in other places. He goes into the synagogue. He quotes the Old Testament. He applies it to Jesus Christ. He knows that they know the Bible. Now here, these folks have never seen a Bible. If you handed them a Bible and you said, please turn to Isaiah, they would go like this. Where's that? Huh? Well, just just turn to Genesis. That's easy. Okay, is it in the back? Is it in the middle somewhere? You see, we take for granted that everyone knows where everything is in the Bible. And sometimes we need to meet people where they are at a point of contact. You see, they knew that there was a creator. They knew that they existed. They knew that they planted and crops came up. And so Paul begins there at that point of contact. But I want you to notice that point of contact is not a point of compromise. He doesn't begin to play into their superstitions. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cut short the truth. He begins at the point of contact and he says, there is a God and you need to believe in him. You see, he's not neutral. He doesn't say, I believe in God and you believe in Zeus and Hermes. Can't we all get along here? No, he presses the claims of the truth of the Scripture with them, but he does it in a way that they can understand. Now, we must also understand that Paul doesn't finish here. You see, he begins with the point of contact. He doesn't end there. And you may say, well, he never gets to Jesus in Lystra. And there's a good reason for that. Before he can get to Jesus, a mob drags him off and throws huge boulders at him to kill him, and then they drag him off outside the city and drop him in what is probably the trash heap. You see, Paul doesn't get to Jesus because providentially he can't. He begins at that point of contact. He says, there is a creator, and the creator has left a witness, and the creator has blessed you, and you should be thankful for that. And he's going to go to Jesus, but he can't. He's cut off in the middle because once again, Satan is at work. The Jews who hate him so much, not only now have they gathered together with the Gentiles, they have traveled about 60 miles just to track him down. 60 miles by foot. Remember, they don't have cars. That's a lot of hatred there, isn't it? 
you kick somebody out of your town and you follow him 60 miles down just to make sure he gets kicked out of the next town too. And you see, this confusion has erupted in Lystra. And you can imagine that those who were ready to honor Paul and Barnabas now turn on them. And maybe they say to themselves, well, they don't believe in our gods. We don't believe in them. And so Paul meets a great difficulty here. It's a difficulty he will remember when he writes the letter to the Galatians to these cities. He reminds them that he bears in his bodies the marks of Jesus. I think those marks are stone cuttings and pelts and welts. Confusion in Lystra. So, Paul is stoned with rocks. And in what seems to be the most blandly described miracle in the Bible, he gets up. Now, you need to understand here that when you were stoned, they had stones that you passed out and they weren't pebbles. They weren't even baseball size usually. They were more like softball or bigger. You didn't live through a stoning. But Paul does. Why? The only way that Paul lives through this stoning is because God is not finished with him yet. When God is not finished with you, it doesn't matter what is in your way. He will conquer it. Do you feel sometimes like you can't get through what is in front of you? The circumstances you're placed? It could be financial need. It could be illness. It could be tattered relationships. You see, you must not give up because God does not give up. The grace of God reaches down into the most difficult of circumstances we have. And He uses the most broken and battered vessels. Men like Paul, misunderstood, attacked, persecuted. God uses him. And so then we see a third thing and final thing this morning. We've seen Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium and preach the gospel where division occurs. They go into Lystra where a huge confusion comes up. And then they go to bring encouragement to Antioch. Now you have to understand this. They go to Iconium and they're driven out. They go to Lystra and they're attacked and Paul is stoned and they're driven out. And so what they suggest the next course of action to do is to go back through the same route. Visit the same cities. Every place they've just been kicked they're going to go back to. Who is this man? Who is his God that would encourage him that he needs to bring encouragement to those believers that are in places they barely escaped with their lives? Because you see, The Lord knows that these little fledgling churches need encouragement. And so Paul and Barnabas go, and they go to bring, first, a call to perseverance, and then secondly, a call to encouragement. They go into these towns where these small churches are, and they begin to encourage the believers, encourage the disciples. And they do that first by modeling that kind of perseverance, They're going back through cities that they have no business going back through. They're going back without any discouragement. Can you imagine 
the hope that would spring up in these small cities and these small churches as Paul and Barnabas describe what they've been through. And they still give glory to God. Paul encourages the believers there to persevere through tribulations because he says we must have tribulations to enter the kingdom. Paul is just following after what our Lord Jesus Christ told him in Acts chapter 9. And what Jesus himself said that he was persecuted in John 15. Perhaps he was remembering what Peter would say, that persecution is just for a little while. But you see, we all have tribulations. We may not be stoned. We may not be set on fire. We may not be in fear of our lives. But we have tribulations, don't we? We have to fight sin every day. We have to fight selfishness every day. We have to fight disease and illness. We have to fight others' sin against us. But you see, Paul says, you must expect these things. The Christian life is not all cookies and cake and cream. The Christian life is hard. It's full of sorrow and difficulty because that's what our Lord has designed. But he doesn't just tell them to grit their teeth and bear it. He then begins to encourage them. He says, you must be encouraged and built up. You've begun well. Finish well. And he begins to help them by establishing them. He teaches them. And he does something here that, again, we as Presbyterians wouldn't expect. They go down through and they appoint elders in every church. Which church do you know where they appoint elders who have been converts about a month? Or a month and a half? These are all new converts. But you see, it's that important to have leadership. Paul knows they must be organized. They must be comforted. And so he entrusts people in this church to lead even after he has left. And then the last and final thing that he does is he reminds them whose success this is. Look with me at verse 27. He says, they arrived and gathered the church together and declared all that God had done. And they do something that we should do more of. Is Paul's life over? Is his missionary work over? No. But he knows this phase is over. And he says, we've done it. We've accomplished it. You see, we need to do that more often. To see a goal to approach life in bite-sized pieces and to declare the glorious things that God has done in our midst, knowing that He will call us to more and more. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're reminding us that we engage the culture by letting God engage the culture. That they bring the Word of God to every kind of culture and people. And that it always, always includes the message of Jesus. It may begin at different points, but it includes the message of Jesus. And they remind us that we are to expect opposition. But we are also to expect victory. Because it is God who is in charge. Not Paul, not Barnabas, 
Not me. Not you. It's God. He is building His kingdom. And the gates of hell, whether they're in Iconium or Lystra or Derby or Antioch, will not prevail against Him. Let's pray.